You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If you're new here, uh, my name's Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a joy to have you with us. It really is a joy. We want to thank you for, for being here. And uh, we are in a study looking at these two um, prophets from the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. And we're almost done. Next week we, fi- we finish up, actually, uh, on the life of Elisha and his ministry. So next week will be the, sort of the last message that we do uh, in this series. And then we've got a few um, individual things we're doing in the month of August individual kind of one-off sermons, and then uh, in the fall, we're going to jump into the book of First Peter and walk through that. So we're about to wrap up here with, uh, with Elisha, and the passage that we're going to look at today really reveals how God delivers his people, how God brings deliverance to his people in the midst of desperate times. And throughout this series, as we've talked about grace in the dark, we've seen how dark it's been in Israel. And it's very dark today. Um, This passage, I know kids are in the service. Uh, I'm I'm well aware of that. It's got a couple of really dicey verses, and uh, I will read them, but I will not be providing any graphic commentary uh, because we have our kids with us uh, this month, and so everybody will know what it means and uh, won't need to get into details, but uh, let you know about that uh, coming up in the passage. So let's read this passage. We're going to break it into two big sections, Deliverance for Desperate Times. Uh, And we're going to start in 2 Kings 6, verse 24, and we'll read through 7, chapter 7, verse 2. This is God's holy word to us. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, What's your trouble? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today. And We will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked. And behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent out to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So the story opens up with desperate, desperate times for the people of God. Uh, There's two indicators that things are desperate. First is the price of food. So at the beginning of the passage, we find out that Syria has besieged uh, Samaria. Samaria is the capital city. And uh, so Syria has put all their troops around the city so that no one can get in or no one can get out. Thus, there's no food. And uh, so the price of food has risen dramatically because of it's in short supply so that people are actually uh, buying donkey's head, it says. A donkey's head uh, went for 80 shekels of silver, which would be years of wages. So the people are down to the place where they're eating not only unclean animals, they're eating parts, body parts of unclean animals like a donkey's head. There's also sort of this mysterious, no commentators really agree or on it, but there's sort of this mysterious thing of selling half a liter of dove's dung, uh, and that costs five months' salary. So we don't know that probably, they're probably not eating that, but it, it could be uh, another name. Some say it's another name for carob pods. Um, some people say, well, it could have been used for fuel uh, in some way, but at whatever it is, Things are so bad, dove droppings are, uh, you know, five-month salary for half a liter. The, the second sign of real desperation we get by the story of the despondent mother who cries out to the king. Now, she cries out asking for help to the king, and you'll notice the king says, hey, look, I can't do anything for you. What do you want, from the threshing floor or from the wine press? He's probably assuming you're hungry like everyone else is. We're starving to death. Uh, I, I, I can't get you anything from the wine press. I, if God doesn't provide for you, uh, I can't do anything for you. But we realize that she's asking for something else besides food. He says, what is your trouble? And she describes a situation to him where the people have uh, been forced to turn to cannibalism. And so she uh, cries out for justice because she says, basically, this mom and I had a deal, uh, my son today and then your son tomorrow, And uh, so my son today, that happened. And then the next day, uh, your son, uh, her son was disappeared. It was nowhere to be found. So it was, she's complaining about justice. Look, she owes, uh, you know, she did this terrible thing. And this whole discussion is so grievous, so inhumane that the king rips his clothing, a sign of uh, grief. And when he rips his clothing you see underneath that he is wearing sackcloth, which is a sign of repentance. We'll look at that in a minute. So he is grieved over all of this. But instead of crying out to God, which would be the appropriate response, instead of crying out to God and saying, God, rescue us, he says, I'm taking off Elisha's head within the next 24 hours. That's what he says. You know, be it done unto me and far worse May God do to me and more also, basically, he says, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So he is mad at the prophet who has announced God's judgment. But Elisha did not come up with this judgment. 
we read this story and say, why is this even in the Bible, you know? It happened. That's one reason. But because what's happening in the book of Kings is the author is trying to show God's people what happens when they turn from God and turn to idols. When you reject, when the God's people reject him, uh, God implements what's called the covenant curses. So God rescued Israel. He brought them out of Egypt. And then he made a covenant relationship with them. And we see in the Old Testament that he describes what happens if you follow me then these are all the blessings that are going to happen to you as my people. But if you refuse to follow me after I've rescued you and given you a land, if you refuse to follow me, then these are the various things that will happen. And the grievous scenario that we just read of is very specifically a covenant curse. And so the first readers of this would have read the story of cannibalism, and they would have gone, oh, yeah, well, we know That's a sign of judgment. God promised that would happen. This isn't just some random horror story. It's something that God promised would happen. And the reason we see this is because it's a reminder God keeps his word. And he had promised the people his blessings if they followed him in the first, in this old covenant, in the old covenant, and his curse if they didn't. So we see it. It's in Deuteronomy 28 is where this covenant curse is found. Deuteronomy 28 verse um, 45 says this. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. And then down in verse 52, it lists some, and then this is what we come to in 52. They shall besiege you, which is what's happened, in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you have trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you." So what's happening is just revealing that the people have disobeyed God, they've been besieged by their enemy, they have no food, and the very fruit of their disobedience, which God uh, said would happen, has now actually come to happen. So the original readers of this who would have been aware of that would say, oh yes, the blessing of God comes when we know him and follow him, and yet there's great destruction when we follow other gods. Well, the king is angry with Elisha, so what he does is he sends a messenger. And Elisha is a prophet of God, man. He he was uniquely gifted. Last week we saw he knew what the king of Syria was saying in his bedroom. So he's he's basically tuned in to all kinds of things God wants him to be tuned into. So he's just sitting uh, with the elders, and he says, by the way, somebody's coming to kill me, so would you please block the door, and would you bar it, you know, so that uh, nobody can get in. And sure enough, the messenger uh, shows up, and uh, when the messenger comes representing the king, he says this in, uh, in verse uh, 33, the trouble, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So when we get this frustration with God, and we know the king's wearing sackcloth, we could probably make some um, assumptions about this. Probably Elisha, because this happens throughout the narrative, probably Elisha had told the king to repent. And the king has done something to repent. He's put on sackcloth, which is representative of repentance. But God is not moving on his timetable. And so he is upset He is saying, this trouble's from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? 
I did the repentance thing. I wore the sackcloth. And God isn't removing his judgment. We're still suffering. How long do I have to wait for God until he comes through and delivers us from our suffering? He is, he is not seeing God move in a timetable time that he would expect. And he's saying, where is God in all this? And the reality is that for all of us, repentance and waiting on God are rarely our desired solutions. We don't want to wait. We often don't want to repent, but we don't want to wait. We want God to move quickly when we do show some signs of repentance, and in that case, it hasn't happened. However, Elisha makes a promise of deliverance, so that it's desperate times, and then he makes a promise of deliverance. He says in uh, chapter 7, we saw, he says, look, um, here's what's going to happen. By tomorrow, um, a sea of flour will be cost this, two seahs of barley will cost this. Now, these aren't super, super cheap groceries that he's talking about, but it's cheaper than what they're experiencing. First of all, they're not eating donkey heads and buying dove dung. They're buying barley and flour. So he's saying everything's going to change. He's not just predicting the market, but he's saying God's going to bring deliverance so that food will be readily available by this time tomorrow. And the king's you know, uh, assistant, right-hand person who's there responds with not only cynicism, but mocking the promise of God. He says, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, how could this thing be? In other words, if God makes windows, opens his windows, and just starts pouring food and blessings, and the Syrians, you know, uh, aren't besieging us anymore, uh, that, that, that couldn't even happen you know, is basically what he says. And then Elisha says to him, you will see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So Elisha says to him, deliverance is coming by this time tomorrow, but because you have mocked God and not believed his promise, you won't taste of the deliverance of God. The next passage is about the deliverance of God, the gift of deliverance. And this is an amazing account of God working Um, without any help from his people whatsoever. Verse 3, chapter 7. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, "Let, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, We shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. 
Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I'll tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who've already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Well, this account is of a miraculous deliverance. Samaria was the city of the living dead. Everyone is slowly dying of starvation, and we read this account of four lepers who are sitting out in front of the gate. They can't even interact with people. They're completely separate because of their leprosy. And they they sort of think to themselves very reasonably, hey, we can't really go back in the city. They probably weren't allowed, but there's no food in there. So if we were to go in the city, we would die. If we sit here, we will die. So why don't we sort of defect over to the Syrian, to Syria, to the Syrian army, and uh, maybe they let us live and give us something to eat. And if we die, well, we're dying anyway. So they're saying that, you know, might as well give it a shot. It's a long shot, but why not? And so when they go, they find that the camp is entirely empty. And verse 6 tells us why, because God did a miracle. The Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army. So this is a miracle of hearing something that's not really there. The Syrians are just biding their time until the people of Israel die and they can basically just walk in to the uh, into the city. Um, they're biding their time and they hear thunderous uh, sounds of chariots and an, an approaching army. 
which is not happening, but God is doing this in their ears. They're hearing it, or he's making this sound, something. And they assume that Israel has hired someone to come kill them. Israel's hired the Hittites. Israel's hired Egypt. And so they just flee in a panic. They have an absolute panic, and they run. They, they go crazy. They just leave everything uh, where it is, and they take off. Uh, and God delivers his people without a blow. There's not a blow. There is no battle at all. He just scares them, and they take off. Well, the lepers show up, and they see that they're all gone. They don't know what has happened, but they say, man, this is good eating. They're not eating anything, and they say they find, the first thing it says is they eat. Uh, They find, and they eat, and they drink uh, in verse 8. They come to the edge of the camp, they go into a tent, they eat and drink, they carry off the silver and gold, and they go bury it for later. Then they come back to another tent. They eat and they drink. It says they do the same thing. They carry off what's in it, and they go and bury that as well. And then in verse 9, they feel a twinge of conviction about what they're doing. I mean, they've walked in, and they're having a party enjoying this deliverance that God has brought. But they say in verse 9, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. They realize that we're not telling everyone about this. The entire city is starving to death and don't know that their survival is right here, that God has provided abundantly for everyone. And they don't know about that. And what happens is they realize that this is a day, they say, of good news. We've got to tell the good news because good news is meant to be shared and not hoarded. They are hoarding the blessings of deliverance from God. They're keeping it private for themselves. And there's a whole city of people dying that don't know about this. And so they say, we must go back and tell. So they go back. They can't even go in the city. If you remember how he he said that they call out to the people on the gate and they say, listen, they're gone. The army's gone. It's all ours. And so they report it to the king. The king has military experience. He says, no, this is a trap. I know this is a trap. Uh, They're just hiding. And then when we come out to take their stuff, they're going to ambush us. And uh, so a nameless servant, all of this is happening with these nameless people, outcast lepers. And then this nameless servant says to the king, hey, why, we've got five horses left. They're probably eating the horses. We've got a few horses left. Let's go and send some people to look around and scout it out. They, they go and scout it out, and, and what they find is they've run in haste. They find their garments, their weapons. They've just run and left everything. And they say, this is true. They come back and tell them this is actually true. So these these leper evangelists have gone and told that good news and everybody hears and everybody gets in on it. Everybody hears the message of the good news and then they run down and uh, the entire city is able to come and be saved, literally, rescued, delivered. It's interesting that this verse, they use the same term, good news, that the New Testament uses as well. If you're new to the Bible, uh, you've probably heard the word gospel, 
It's a word that's in the New Testament quite a bit, and the word gospel just literally means good news. It's this. This is really a picture of the gospel. It is good news that people that are dying receive deliverance from God completely freely and then go back and share that good news with other dying people to let them know there's life and provision out here because of something we did not do. Usually, when you're going through the spoils, it's after a bloody battle where many soldiers have perhaps lost their lives. But that's not what's happening here. God has just delivered them without them doing anything. And that is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Just drawn by those words, good news, I think it points to the New Testament, what we see of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, who gives his life without us doing anything, delivers and rescues us, provides blessings to just walk out for the taking simply by faith in him. It's an amazing story. And, of course, there's always emphasis on the word of God coming true, the atrocious story of the cannibalism. Uh, that has been told previously by the word of God. That's what will happen. And Elisha has given the promise that has happened. And Elisha has also delivered judgment to the captain who mocked the promise. And the captain, it tells us, he's guarding the gate. And it goes through the whole thing again to make sure we got it about the seas of flour and the seas of barley. And it tells us exactly, verse 19, remember the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? It reports again. We get twice the captain's cynicism and mockery of God. And then we have Elisha saying, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat it. And we have him trampled at the gate, a tragedy for him because he refused to believe the promise of God. How do we apply a passage like this one? I've already sort of tipped my hand into how I think we um, apply it. When we're reading Old Testament narrative, we are always to be looking for what do we learn about God, not primarily what do we learn about us. It's not about us, but what do we learn about God and how God acts? Um, and then we also seek to say, how does, how does this connect? How does this story connect to the big story of the Bible, the story of, uh, of God's redemption through Jesus Christ? And so I think both of those uh, are not hard to see in this passage. What we see of God is that God is true to his word. And when God promises judgment, God brings judgment. And when God promises deliverance, God promises deliverance because God's word is always true. We we find in here that God is holy, that he loves his people enough not to allow them to go off and serve other gods um, without bringing uh, sort of this uh, discipline into their lives to bring them to repentance. So we learn that God is holy from this passage, and that's why the people are in the trouble that they are in. It's not because the Syrian army is powerful. It's because God's people have sinned. God would always protect his people uh, when they are walking with him. Those kind of things don't happen. And so we've learned that God is holy. But we also learn that God delivers without any help from his people, <laughs> that God does not need us, that deliverance is by grace and is simply a gift to be received. And from the uh, account of the four lepers, we find that the joy of the good news I mean, it doesn't use the word joy here, 
But I, I think the way that the, uh, the verses describe their approach, that they come in and immediately go into a tent and eat. Can you imagine if you're dying and are starving, people are starving all around you, to walk into a tent and just see all this food that you could eat and drink? So they are eating, and then there's gold and silver. And so they're going and taking all of that with joy and sort of burying it. Jesus tells a, a story about the joy of experiencing the kingdom. Jesus tells a story that, you know, the kingdom of God is like this. A guy finds a treasure in a field, and then he goes and with joy sells everything he has and comes, buys that field so he gets the treasure. When we find the treasure of Jesus, when we find in this situation the treasure of deliverance, before them like that. There is a joy that comes with that. And I think the Lord calls us to remember what he has done in delivering us, what he has provided for us, how exciting that is, how, how, how awe-inspiring it is to know by a miracle he defeats an entire army without a blow. And then to have all of this at their disposal. You know, we talk a lot about perseverance through trials, and we should because it's all over the Bible. We talk a lot about God's faithfulness to us when we're suffering, that's all over the Bible. We sing about that. We sing a lot of songs about that uh, because we walk in here every week with various trials and challenges, and we need to be reminded of the power of God and the goodness of the gospel and his strength to help us endure. But there are times where we need to just pause on the suffering and endurance messages, which are all over the Bible, But we just need to stand back and think about the joy of the provision of God and the good news of what he's done for us. There's a time to be the leper that just walks into the camp dying and says, look at all of this. Look what God has done for us. There's a time just to be aware and to celebrate, to take moments when we say, Lord, how rich we are. They went from nothing to extreme wealth in this context. They have everything that they need. They went from death to life in a moment. Life is before them. There is all of a sudden, they are hopeless. I mean, the whole dialogue, maybe they don't kill us. That's their hope. Their hope is there's three scenarios, two of them we die, one of them we probably die, but maybe they don't kill us. That's the level of hope they're coming with their rotting bodies into the camp, and then all of a sudden, everything is there for their life, freely. It's been provided, God has brought deliverance to them. There are moments that we need to just step back and say, regardless of my circumstances, I am rich in Christ. I'm convinced that if we could see how desperate we are, I mean, we we read this story and go, man, those people are desperate. That story about the moms eating donkey heads, buying dove dung, these are hurting. It doesn't get any lower than this. These are desperate people. If we could see before God our condition, maybe not our physical condition, but our soul, our spiritual condition before the holy God of the universe, if we could see how that we are dead in sin, that we were under the wrath and judgment of God, if we could see how desperate we are without Christ, and then all that we have in Christ, all that he has provided for us, I believe we'd be dancing in the streets. We wouldn't just sort of casually say, that's interesting. We wouldn't just sort of sit back sort of dispassionately with our arms folded and say, yeah, I've heard that before. What else you got? 
You got some tips for a better life? No, I think we would be dancing. We'd be celebrating. And that's exactly what will happen when we see Jesus face to face and we realize who he is, all that he's rescued us from, and how glorious he is. In that, won't that moment be great? And I don't believe that God is just reserving that moment for that day in its fullness for sure. But I believe we're to get tastes of that, glimpses of that today. Where I don't believe God wants you to live your entire Christian life without experiencing joy and some vision of what he's done for you. The sense of relief that your sins are forgiven. The sense of peace that comes from a clear conscience. The sense of joy that comes with the assurance of eternal life. I believe that the experience of the lepers is to be ours, that we walk into this deliverance, this bounty, and we did nothing to earn it. Or deserve it. But it's not just enough to remember the good news. We have to remember to share the good news. I mean, that's their conclusion, right? This is a day of good news. We're not doing right hoarding this. I don't know about you, but that verse is convicting to me about hoarding the good news. Isn't it easy? to be with just our other fellow leper friends, a few of us that have experienced the grace of God and just be together, just liking being together here with, in, in the scene of deliverance, you know, having all this bounty for ourselves and just forgetting about all the people in the walled city that are starving to death and desperate. But we've got all this stuff. Isn't this great? I'm not talking about material things. I'm talking about that might be applicable, but I'm talking about spiritual blessings. It's so easy just to be around our fellow people that have been delivered and forget about everyone around us who is dying to hear this news, literally, spiritually, dying to hear this news, and God's given it to us to tell. I'm going to tell you a story and read you a story about Hudson Taylor. I'm rarely as confident as I am about this story. This story is for somebody in the room. I know this. Maybe multiple ones of us in the room. The reason I know this is because I was studying for this message. Uh, Thursday afternoon, I came across this story. and uh, I'd never heard this story about the missionary Hudson Taylor. I came across this story in a commentary by uh, Riken, and I read it. And I just made myself a note. Maybe I'll share that Sunday. That's, that's a good story. Maybe, maybe I can work that in. Maybe that will fit to the leper's story of going and telling the good news. Fast forward 48 hours. Yesterday, I'm talking to someone. Uh, they're in my house. I don't, I've never met this person until yesterday. And uh, she is telling me about how God had um, put on her heart to reach people with the gospel, to reach the unreached with the gospel. And she says, you know, one of the things that really turned me that direction is this story about Hudson Taylor. And she starts telling me the story, which I had never heard before 48 hours before that. And I stopped her in the middle and said, wait a minute, I might be sharing that story tomorrow. I, this is uncanny. You're, and so I, I don't know a lot. I don't have great discernment. I'm not prophetic. But when you think about telling a story and then someone you've never met 48 hours ago comes in and says, that story changed my life, then probably you should share that story. And... Um, I think so. Now, you're probably going to be let down now that you're the story you're expecting. What is this story? Just get to it. Well, I, I can't promise that this will change everybody's life, but this is going to change somebody's life because that confirmation was uncanny. That doesn't happen to me regularly. Here it is. In the 19th century, when the pioneer missionary Hudson Taylor traveled through China proclaiming the good news, he met a man who was a Buddhist teacher. 
The man had spent many years seeking the truth. He had studied Confucianism and Buddhism and Taoism. But, of course, he did not find the truth until he heard the good news about Jesus Christ. Then he became an evangelist and started sharing the gospel with Buddhists. So, as Riken tells the story here, uh, from England, uh, Hudson Taylor comes. He's a, 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 you know early missionary to China. Guy gets converted, and this guy starts telling other people about Jesus. Not long after he was converted, the man asked Hudson Taylor, how long had the gospel been known in England? He was shocked to discover it had been known for hundreds of years. What? The man exclaimed, for hundreds of years you've had this good news and only now you have come to share it with us? My father sought after the truth for more than 20 years, and he died without finding the truth. Why did you not come sooner? The man's question haunted Hudson Taylor. Riken writes, and it should haunt every Christian. Why did you not come sooner? The gospel, you see, of Jesus Christ is not something to share when we get around to it. It is something we should share as soon as we can. As soon as we can. The story of the lepers makes that clear, doesn't it? They are just enjoying the bounty provided by God. And it occurs to them. We need to tell as soon as we can those who are dying within the city walls. And isn't that true? Don't we have people all around us and all over the world in the Hudson Taylor story, not just around us, but in other places that do not have the deliverance that we've experienced. And what a call for all of us, whether it's going across the street or across the ocean, to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not just called to enjoy the deliverance, to enjoy the victory won, to enjoy the spoils, but we're called to share that good news It is, the lepers say, a day of good news. And if you know Jesus, every day is a day of good news. No matter how bad things are, it is always a day of good news. You may feel like, well, you know, I'm not ready to pass on the good news. I'm not articulate. I'm a new believer. I don't think I could answer their questions. Or I just don't want to be, you know, stir up controversy. And it's just easier just to go about my go about my way. But one of the comforts of this story is the most, aside from Elisha, the most influential people in the story are the greatest outcasts in society. No one has less of a voice than the leper sitting outside the city, and that's the one God uses as the evangelist. We dare not look at ourselves and say, I have nothing to offer. This shows that God is the God who uses the weak to confound the wise. God is the God who uses the outcast to proclaim the good news to people of power to see their need. And, and, you know, even the king is skeptical. But who is it that convinces the king? We don't know. He's called servant, a nameless servant. Says, why don't we go and check it out? And you see God using these people who are not promoted as some great individuals. They're outcast and unnamed people that are the voice of deliverance so that everybody rushes and gets in on the goodness of God. 
Well, the last account of the story is sobering, isn't it? If we're to celebrate the good news and remember it, if we're to share the good news, we don't want to reject the good news. That's the captain. The captain in this story hears the promise from Elisha. And I think it's very fair to make that um, comparable to gospel proclamation. Why do I say that? Because Elisha is saying, I'm proclaiming to you that deliverance is coming from God. That's the gospel for us. And so he says, deliverance is coming in 24 hours. The guy's cynical. He's more than cynical. He mocks God. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ in love, I want to let you know that Jesus came and gave his life for our sin and for our rejection of him. He loves us, and he's made a way for us to be right with him at the greatest cost imaginable, his, his own death. And he was raised to new life. And I just want to encourage you that if you've never met Christ, you've never believed in him, that, that not to sit back and be cynical, not to be just sort of um, an observer, and certainly not to be a mocker. This passage really makes clear the destiny of those who mock the promise and the deliverance of God. Those who mock, those who call out, that's impossible. Then we find him, and it's brutal, but we're told he's trampled in the gate. It's it's really a picture of the destruction that comes, which is actually an eternal destruction to those who reject the promise and the provision that God makes those who will believe. And yet those who believe and run out find that what the weak, outcast, leper evangelists said was true. God has delivered us. We haven't done a thing. And it's ours to receive. Today, receive the blessing and the salvation of God, which is offered to you by His grace alone. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.